Good evening, friends, family, Sangha siblings. <laughs> I'm excited to share with you a few thoughts on um, some of just some of the experiences I've had with uh, the teachings. Let me just start by saying how utterly touched I am by your practice this, this week so far. I've learned so much. I've delighted in just the different ways you've, you've been unfolding in your practice. And I've noticed that there's a number of you that are really settling into the retreat, settling into the teachings, giving it your full heart. And that's really nourishing for us teachers to be in a field with people that are really just trying to open to the nature of who, who you are. And that's really what I want to talk a bit about tonight. You know, when I started in this tradition of Theravadan Buddhism in 1992, uh, one of the things that attracted me to the practice was that was the teaching on know for yourself. The Buddha says repeatedly throughout his discourses, don't take my word for it, know for yourself. And early on, I, I was so delighted with that because I was raised in the Baptist church where you were told to believe, you know, and I did and I still do to some extent. But there was a fear around it, and it was like I had to figure it out that way or else I was going to go to hell. I mean, there was just a lot of that. But this idea of knowing for yourself, just the thought of that, know the teachings for yourself, don't take my word for it. There was something very liberating about that invitation. But initially, the invitation centered around ego. I'm going to know for myself, you know. Uh, little did I know <laughs> that knowing was, uh, was, was utterly fundamental to the Buddhist teachings. And it's not just knowing from an ego standpoint, but knowing from the depth of understanding your mind. So there's been so many iterations of knowing so many deepenings around my understanding of knowing for myself through this practice, and they continue. And where my understanding of knowing when I started in 1992 is very different than it is now, and will probably be very different than it is tonight, tomorrow. <laughs> because that's, we keep waking up to what we don't know. We keep surrendering to something deeper than what the ego is capable of constructing. And, you know, the ego has a lot of pride around what it knows. And that's really a piece of um, how, a big part of why we suffer so much. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the bones or the fundamentals of the Buddha Dharma. See, the Buddha was a scientist. He was a scientist of mind, and he specialized in suffering and its end. That's his contribution to the uh, gestalt of spiritual enlightenment in my, in my mind. 
that this, this, this carved out specialization in looking at suffering and its end in a very particular and prescribed way. So the instructions, some of the bones here, are the bones of the four foundations of mindfulness. Because this practice we're doing here this week is really a part of, a, of, of, a, of sacred geometry, a very vast, deep knowledge of teachings is what mindfulness is, is sprung from. And so I just want to offer a little bit of context so that we know we're really being held by something um, that's well over 2,600 years old. So when the, uh, when the Buddha talked about the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is that there is suffering. I think you all know what that is. <laughs> you, know, you know, we've had various experiences with that. And what he said was that suffering is to be understood. Not just there is suffering, but it is to be understood. First noble truth. Second noble truth is there is a cause to suffering. The cause of suffering is that we cling to things. We over-identify with things. We attempt to solidify and perfect our lives. The cause is that we're clinging. And that clinging is to be realized, is to be kind of recognized. And the third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering, which is really, the end of suffering is really about the release of the clinging. And that release is to be realized, is to be, um, is to, is to be known. The release of our suffering is to be known. The freedom from suffering is something we can know. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a path, there's a well-walked way of, of making that come together. And that path is the eightfold path. Wise view, wise renunciation, wise understanding, wise livelihood, wise action, wise speech, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. This is where the, the mindfulness practice that we've, we've been doing lives in the seventh of the eighth of the eightfold path. And the path is to be cultivated. The path is to be cultivated. But understanding these liberatory teachings is to understand the wheel, the eighth, eightfold path of the wheel, and that it's a system of meaning. It's a sacred geometry. It's a labyrinth that's working. These, these spokes work together. So we're in a very um, intelligent system of becoming awake to how we uh, are working with our mind. So some of what I'll be saying tonight, um, I think, lends itself to those of us that are, are starting to settle a little bit, and we can start playing with some of these, um, this offering this evening. And if, it's, if, it, if it doesn't sound like something you can step into, that's okay. This is a life's work, this, 
and many lifetimes of work. It's not meant that you take this all and then go rush to do it. That's, that's not at all the idea. But just to appreciate that it's, there's more um, available to us to try on and uh, that would support us in understanding um, how we're unfolding and what's actually happening. So I have a bit of um, uh, show and tell here to talk about um, that there are two aspects of mine, if you will. I'm being very simplistic around these teachings. So I have a show and tell. What I'm holding in my hand is a jar, and half of it is filled with water, and the other half is filled with oil. So let's just say that the, 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 the bottom part that's water is the um, knowing mind, and the top part that is oil, is oil is the objects of mind. These are the two aspects of mind, objects of mind and the knowing mind. The objects of mind is what we've been working with a lot this week and what we've been hearing and relating to in terms of being with what arises in the mind all of our thoughts and feelings and emotions and stories and body pain and memory and all of these ways and waves of experience are objects of mind. We have ears that hear, noses that smell, you know, mouths that speak, um, bodies that feel, minds that think, all part of objects of mind that arise and pass away trillions of times a day. So that's the oil. Our identities, our beliefs, what we feel strongly about, our histories, all of that is part of objects of mind. And then the, the water part is the knowing mind. So there's the objects of mind and then there's the knowing mind. The knowing mind is like a, a mirror-like mind it reflects back what we are aware of. So it reflects back whatever appears in the mirror of the mind, right? So it reflects back what we are conscious of. And it's a quality of our mind, it's an aspect of the mind that's open, spacious, receptive, and awake, right? It's the aspect of mind that simply knows what's happening. So what happens when I shake this jar is we have dukkha. Okay, this is what happens when we're not able to discern that there's two aspects of mind instead of one. When we over-identify with the objects of mind, it's hard to really be able to see that there's a knowing mind that, that knows what's going on. So the knowing aspect of our mind is underdeveloped. But the objects of our mind are well-developed based on our conditioning. So when we fixate on the objects of mind, we personalize them, we over-identify with them, with the objects we're suffering unnecessarily. 
But when we put the jar down, what naturally starts to happen is what? The oil and the water starts to separate a little bit, and we can see a bit more clearly. And that's what we're doing in our mindfulness practice. When we settle down, when we arrive in our seats, when we take our time to, to relax in, we're, we're literally relaxing into the potential of being able to discern and recognize the knowing aspect of mind. There's space for it. Okay? Let's see what's happening. Okay, it may take a little time. That's all right. <laughs> I already sang that song earlier, right? <laughs> So um, I read uh, this uh, reading by uh, Tekun Soho, who's a major figure in the Rinzai school of Zen Buddhism, and it read, it is the very mind that leads the mind astray. And I think it's speaking to these two aspects of mind, because the mind can be led astray fairly readily if we're fixated on the objects that, are, that arise. And part of what we're doing in this practice, if the aim is towards liberation, is that we're really developing a relationship with this knowing mind more and more, which is the pure nature of who we are. So let me say a little bit more about this mirror-like mind. It's mirroring the character of our mind and how we're relating to mind objects. The knowing mind adds nothing. It makes no meaning out of the experience and it has no memory. It's like a movie screen and then the objects of mind are projected on the movie constantly but the screen doesn't change. So the knowing mind is a dimension of, of, uh, is, is, is a dimension of who we are when we're not dependent on clinging. So it opens us to a sense of spaciousness, freedom, and ease. The knowing mind's not necessarily wise or unwise. It's not influenced or affected. It's not damaged or improved by what's reflected on it, regardless of what it is. It reveals to us the true nature of mind. Again, open, receptive, reflective spacious, abiding. It's an unchanging background of awareness that's, that's here. So understanding the knowing mind is kind of knowing aspect of mind is what we cultivate when we're doing mindfulness practice.
So this knowing mind is the pure nature of mind. It's our pure nature of mind, undisturbed by the objects, you know, it's undisturbed by the objects that we get caught up in. And we struggle when we're not able to discern or see that distinction between the objects of mind and the nature of mind, the pure nature of mind. So if the knowing mind could talk, let's just see. Let me look at this again. What's happening? Okay. Um, It has separated. Okay. If the knowing mind could speak, and it doesn't speak, but if it could speak, what it might say to us is know this. Nothing in life is personal, permanent, or perfect. I can just imagine the knowing mind saying, from my experience, looking at all this activity of mine that you've concocted, that you're dealing with moment to moment, if you ask me (laughs) what I want you to know (laughs) is that nothing, absolutely nothing in your experience is personal, permanent, or perfect. So that's my term, not personal, not permanent, not perfect, that's, that's a way that I talk about the three characteristics of our existence. The three characters called the three marks of our existence, the nature of our existence. It's what the, what the knowing mind is basically saying, you know, this is the nature of the awareness that I see as I witness the activity of mine. It's not per- personal, it's not permanent, it's not perfect. And these are the three, uh, these three characteristics, which are anatta, dukkha, and anicca. These are three instructions um, on three ways of looking and seeing and perce- perceiving what's happening. So if we're looking at the hindrances that was talked about earlier in the week, we're looking at the characteristics of the objects of mind that's in the oil. When we're focused, when we're looking at the characteristics, we're looking at how do we discern, you know, is this a hindrance of... um, Aversion, or greed, of doubt, you know. So we can look at the hindrances and really begin to discern, you know, what's happening here? What's, what's, if I were to sum up my experience of what's moving through my mind right now, what would the word be? What, what is the hindrance, right? But when we're looking at the nature of mind, the question becomes what's being known? What's being known? And the short cut words would be, you know, um, uh, what's, uh, what's, can, is, is impermanence present? Is dukkha present? Is the non-self present as we look at the mind? What's being known as we look at the mind? So this is a meditative way of seeing. This is not a teaching that 
translates so um, easily into our day-to-day walking world and and our day-to-day lives. But it is a meditative way of seeing, and we're able to see these characteristics actually function and do what the, what do do their nature when we have uh, settled ourselves enough to be able to see this distinction. Okay, looking good, looking good. Okay. This practice of these three characteristics encourages a certain simplicity of practice. You can uh, simplify through these teachings. Um, because it's not you, what we're looking at when we're working with the three characteristics is we're not just focused on the objects of mind. The objects of mind get just as much play as the knowing mind itself. So we're kind of curious about this knowing mind and how it's revealing the character of mind that we're sitting with. So it's a kind of seeing that's not having preferences, preferences for what's being seen and the mind. So here's a poem by uh, Wallace Stevens, Stevens, who wrote in the book 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And what's written here is, is he says, I don't know which I prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird wristling or just after. So the, 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 the view is broad and includes all of what's happening, the objects that are arising and all of the space that's there as well. Another way of saying this would be what Winnie the Pooh would say. And here's a reading. He says, well, said Pooh, what I like best, and then he had to stop and think, because although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was a moment just before he began to eat it, which was better than when he did, but he didn't know what to call it. So I'd like to talk about each of these characteristics and how you might begin to start to work with them in your practice. Again, ideally once you've become a bit settled, once the hindrances are not in full-blown force and, you know, you find a moment or a few moments where you feel settled enough to open the awareness to seeing what the, what, what some, how some of these characteristics are there because they're always there. All you have to do is close your eyes and see all the fast movement to know about Anicca. So, Anicca, I'll talk about impermanence here. Life is not permanent always shifting. The activities change. Life is always shifting. It's inconstant, fluctuating, altering. We have shifts in mood, intensity, energy, sense impressions, emotions, moments of relief, still, calm, spaciousness, all constantly changing. The ordinary mind, we want things to stay the same, especially if we like them. We want things to stay lovely to our liking and to stay put. 
we want solid ground under our feet at all times. And um, we want to be in control. I mean, I don't need to be in control, but I know the, <laughs> the rest of you. Do I need to be in control? I don't need to be in control. No. So we want things to stay put, you know. And we can really kind of get annoyed when things don't go our way. I have a sense that some of you know what that's about. So the Buddha talks a lot about the worldly winds that we're kind of navigating all the time, these, these, these pairs of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and shame, winds of change constantly. And if we're not grounded in wisdom, we're going to be tossed around a lot. So, you know, understanding that nothing in life is permanent, that, that things, are, things are impermanent, things are changing all the time, accepting that is a, is, is a practice because we're not always trained to just do that. We get caught in... Um, and afraid, and then we cling. And these three teachings are really about disidentification with clinging. So think about it this way. Flowers make no promises. The seasons change without apology. Romance doesn't last forever and sometimes doesn't come. (laughs) People we love die. The mind forgets, the body ages, and the cute puppy poops. (laughs) It's hard to accept. (laughs) It's really hard to accept that anything can happen to us at any time. Just think about that. When, When we're sitting in our meditation practice, it's not like we're making ourselves think. There's some aspect of that. But thoughts just come. We're not in control of what arises. We're in control of how we relate to it. But we forget that. Sometimes we think when the thoughts come that we're making ourselves think. It's the nature of the mind to be busy 24-7. It's on its job, and it's good at it. There's no stopping that. So we suffer because our thinking is static, while reality is constantly changing. And we spend a lot of our time and energy trying to go against that nature, that law of nature, that truth of our existence, that characteristic of our existence, that things are impermanent. Things are impermanent. Change is all there is. And in fact, I think it's painful to try to be solid. You know, we can feel that in our body when we're really trying to control and keep things from doing what they must naturally do. It's kind of like good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) So one way to work with um, Anicca is, in your practice, is to, um, the primary focus is, is looking at, at change itself, that change, just opening your awareness to seeing how things are constantly changing and to almost, you know, bow to that. 
and to intentionally and repeatedly attend to the appearing and disappearing of what arises in your mind, even the spaciousness. Just being curious about that, the changing nature of things, the momentary births and deaths and gaps of experience that arise constantly in the mind. You're seeing the nature of mind on the big screen, streaming live, right? And what we're doing to pay attention to Anicca is we're, we're opening our awareness to the full spectrum of experience, not just getting locked on one slice of it. So one way of doing that is we might, you know, open our awareness and notice the, you know, the beginning, middle, and end of, of a thought or a worry. Especially, you know, sometimes what I do in looking at impermanence is I'll be really, I can see myself locked and fixated on a thought or a fear. But what I miss, if I'm not paying attention, is once that subsides, once that's no longer there. So to pay attention to the full spectrum of experience is to see the, the intensity of the experience as well as the relief of it or the release that happens or when it's no longer um, so intense. That's an experience we can know, not just from seeing, but know in the body as we've been talking about this week. And there's a noting we could do with this practice. We could say things like change, change, changing again. I hate this, change. You know, we can just... (laughs) can note it. We can say things like, oh, this will change. You know, because we get real deluded around, especially the things that we like. You know, we don't want that to change. But we can, we can when, especially when we're in a delight, we might drop in every now and then, ah, this, this will change. This will change. This too will change. This is not permanent. Everything changes. So this is just kind of a lack, a relaxed way of being with, with the objects. And, and when we kind of note in this way, it depersonalizes uh, the experience we're having, and it opens, um, opens us to a broader view. We're looking at movement of mind. We're looking at just the constant change that's there. We can become curious about that when we're not too locked, locked up. Because believe me, if you could stop things from changing, you would do that, right? Has anybody been successful so far? Okay. And then there's dukkha. Dukkha, uh, what's meant by dukkha is that there's an, there's an aspect to our life that's inherently unsatisfactory, unreliable, unpredictable, uncontrollable, ungovernable, unfair, and often threatening in our minds. And just by the nature, the first noble truth of suffering is basically saying just because we're in these bodies, there's a level of suffering we can kind of count on. The birthing process, aging, illness, death, disappointments. 
the effort of self-care, loss, and the big one, not getting what we want, and the even bigger one, getting what we want, and not being able to hold on to it because of Anicca, Anicca. So uh, dukkha is, um, is that, you know, life is not perfect. It's, it's not going to be to our liking all the time. And uh, we're not in control, but it doesn't stop us from trying to be. So we get surprised when stuff comes up. We get surprised by dukkha because there's a certain kind of delusion that it actually shouldn't be happening. Stuff shouldn't be happening to, to me, to, to the world. And yet it is. So dukkha, in that sense, it's, it kind of feeds on ignorance. It feeds on a sense of delusion around how we think this moment should be. When we want something other than what's right here in this moment, we, we suffer. When we want this moment that's right here, right here and now, to be different, we're trying to move it out of the way to shape-shift it so that it's to our liking, we suffer. So the wanting mind gets really activated with dukkha. The wanting plays itself out in grasping for something, fighting against something, or not noticing something. You know, so we just don't want things to be messy. We don't, we don't want to hurt. We don't, we don't want to, to um, life to be uh, other than we like it. We want this retreat to be perfect. We want it to be better than the last one. You know, we have the comparing mind. We, you know, we want the food to be perfect, the bed to be perfect, the, you know, the weather to be perfect to our liking. We want a better president or a better senate or a better country. Or better, you know, we want a lot of stuff to go our way. Constantly judging, comparing, fixing, trying to shape it. All of that creates, if we were to drop into the body when we're in the thick of that fixation of trying to get it our way, we would really experience this kind of inner violence that happens from our efforting around perfecting and disliking from our preferences. The need to control is core. It's a core cause of the extraneous suffering that happens to us. And what we want to be looking at is a fundamental belief we have that this shouldn't be happening. So Donna Fowles, I'm probably not pronouncing that well, who's an author and practitioner of mindfulness, wrote a poem on There is No Controlling Life. And she says, There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado. Dam a stream, and it will create a new channel. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. 
The only safety lies in letting it all end, the wind and the weak. Fear, fantasies, failures, and success, let it all in. When loss rips off the door, the doors of the heart, our sadness veils your vision with despair. Patience becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed in your new eyes. Yeah. So dukkha, a a characteristic or law of our existence, the nature of how things are is what we're really wanting to embrace. Of course dukkha is here. Honoring the truth of dukkha means we stop resisting the uncertainty of our existence. We stop fighting with that. One way to work with dukkha as a characteristic of our existence, part of our true nature, is, um, you know, dukkha and suffering are associated with clinging associated with fixation, wrapping ourselves around something. So the primary focus when we want to practice with dukkha is on knowing, allowing, and softening our relationship with struggle. And um, so we can see struggle, and then the practice around dukkha is to soften around it as opposed to be at war with it. Because you really won't win that war. You'll be, you'll, and you'll know that through um, just the tightness and the resistance and the distress that continues to then perpetuate itself in your mind. The noting practice that we can do with dukkha is, um, say, is to quietly note in our minds, suffering is like this. We've heard some of this offering this week. Distress is like this. Hmm. Joy is like this. So noting what is, naming it in some ways dignifies it because it's kind of honoring what's here. It's the, it's the, it's the recognizing. And then we also want to allow ourselves to be touched by it. So we're not trying to just not feel what's happening. It's, it's kind of like, yeah. So that's, that's allowing, recognizing and allowing what's here to be here. And awareness itself has its own release. So even to name it dukkha, ooh, yeah, yeah. Hate is like this. Judgment is, is like this. It feels like this. It feels like this in the body. This is how it lives. This is what we're kind of opening to and softening around. With these practices, what we're wanting to do with the noting practice especially is notice the impact that this way of seeing is having on your sense of identity and and your sense of being in in this body. Because if you could make life perfect, you really would have done that already. That would, that would, that would be a, 
That would be a check. And then anatta is the third of the characteristics. It's uh, the true nature of selflessness, of egolessness. This is what I refer to as life not being personal. It's really not all about you all the time, right? This is kind of opening to a bigger field. This is a big teaching, so we're only going to just touch on it a tad here. But the Buddha declared egolessness a characteristic of existence, saying that there is no entity called self. But we usually feel that we are this body, we are this mind, we are these stories. The body and the mind are ours, a part of us. They belong to us. This is me. This is myself. But in um, the teachings, what we're taught is that we are a series of ever-changing processes referred to as the aggregates of experience, the aggregates of form, the aggregates of Vedana. Jonathan spoke on this a little bit. The aggregate of perception, the aggregate of uh, mental formation or our thoughts and feelings, and the aggregate of consciousness. All of these uh, juggling balls are um, at play zillions of times a day. We're constantly changing. The self we experience, our fixed identity uh, with its planning, its scheming aspects of mind, it's considered a fiction in the ultimate sense of the teachings of the Buddha Dharma. It's a misunderstanding of our true nature. It's a concoction uh, and over-identification with the objects of mind. So our true nature is vaster than the small identity or ego we try so hard to protect. There's a Dzogchen teaching that's called the four, um, the four let bees. And it goes, let, let, leave, the, leave the body as it is. Leave perception as, as it is. Leave the mental and emotional states as is. And leave the vision of the outer world as is. However it appears. Again, these are things we can work with in our meditation that fortifies our capacity to be in the world and respond to other things in a, in a wiser way. So the egolessness um, or the not-self is our true nature. That's the, you could say that's the knowing mind, the formless that was worthy of a bell. <laughs> so clinging, again, these, these three characteristics are all associated with over-identification, over right? And um, 
I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the uh, aggregate of perception because it's something that's just, it's one of those aggregates that's just so um, powerful in our practice, and, and it's something we can begin to turn our attention to. There's a teaching, a sutta, the Vipalasa Sutta, that talks about the, uh, the, um, a reinforcing mechanism of misperception. And misperception is when we perceive something, it's when the ears, you know, the ears hear and the eyes see, we perceive something, and then, of course, we make meaning out of that perception instantly. Um, what also comes with that is an idea of our thoughts and emotions come up with our perceptions. We have a perception, then we have thoughts and emotions about it. That's usually rooted in the past, some experience we've had that begins to shape how we are perceiving so that means this, and oh, this happened, and you did that, so that means this. this is, you know, we have thoughts, beliefs, and emotions about it. And when that gets reinvo- reinforced, then it becomes a, a, a view or a belief system for us. It becomes automatic. It doesn't become something we're mindful of doing. It just becomes how it is, right? So a, a little story about this. When I was in Charlottesville doing a teaching on mindful of race, which I, this is a few years ago, um, a woman, a white woman was taking me to the airport, uh, and we stopped at this uh, intersection. And I looked up, and the street said Barack Avenue. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, wow, where am I? You know, this is in my mind. What a progressive city. Oh, my gosh, I'm all ready to call my wife and say, let's move to Charlottesville. They have a street called Barack Avenue. All of a sudden, I get warm and hot. I I assume this is the most progressive city in the planet. All of a sudden, I'm wrapped in African gear, and my head is wrapped. And I start speaking in Swahili in my mind, and all of a sudden, I'm just regal and... I just didn't know. So, so it was then that I opened my mouth, and I said to the woman that was driving me, I said, wow, uh, this is all of the signal, by the way, so this happens quickly. <laughs> <laughs> the mind's a terrible thing, isn't it? So I finally say to her, I said, wow, what a progressive city. You have a street called Barack Avenue. And she cleared her throat, and she says, well... And in these parts, we call that Barracks Avenue. <laughs> so being deflated, all of a sudden, my, my regal attire blew out the window, <laughs> along with my mind, by the way. And we both giggled our way all the way to the rest of the, the airport because that was just one of those moments, right? But I was so convinced and I was off and running with my story about it. I mean, I was ready to move there, right, in my mind. And just think about, um, I think about sometimes what would have happened if I hadn't opened my mouth. <laughs> I would have went home and probably started packing, you know? Oh, my gosh, you know? I was so wrong, but it felt so right. And that's how it works. 
that was Duca, you know, that was so. So that was one of those, those, those moments of um, perceiving, and perceptions determine the character of what's being perceived. So the way I perceived the, the stop sign then develops, then, then I have a whole story about the character that goes along with what's being seen. And I think the same mechanism works in our minds around our preferences and also around who gets shot and who doesn't in our society. It's the same mechanism that's working in our mind, you know, around what gets seen and what doesn't, even though it's right there. So working with perception is really a powerful and uh, useful tool. We usually have this way of getting a little bit of information and then kind of running off to our own belief about it. So I'm on the plane. I'm on my way home. I'm going through the line. And a woman um, looks at this wristband that I wear. It says, mindful of race, not there yet. And she says, oh, what's your wristband say? And I said, mindful of race. And before I could say anything else, she says, oh, I ran a 10K once for cancer. You're looking really good. <laughs> so I said, can you move me up to first class? That's all I want to know. <laughs> but this sense of papancha where, you know, we get a little bit of information, you know. Papancha, Jonathan talked about this. Papancha is when we, we, we start with something and before we know it, it, it morphs. So we start with the perception. So it's like the cotton candy stick. You get the cotton candy stick. It starts with a stick, right? But by the time they roll it around that machine and get all that pink sticky stuff on it and then hand it to you, you've got a whole constellation of a mess, really. Or you can think about it as a mannequin. The mannequin starts real bare, and then people laid all those clothes on it. It was fine bare, right? <laughs> but we have to layer our preferences around which color, which outfit, you know. That's how the mind works. We, we have something very simple, but then we layer it, and that's what creates a lot of pain. So one way to work with anatta is um, that we, uh, the primary focus is being aware of what's happening without identification. We just kind of interrupt the habitual impulse. And this is a practice. You know, it's not like you're going to get this right away. But we, we, we set an intention to kind of interrupt that kind of habitual flow of, of identifying with what's happening, or we drop in some questions around it. All conceivable self-views are to be seen through, you know. And the, the noting practice that we can use here is not me, not mine, not I, not myself. Especially if we get snagged in the over-identification, we can just back up. We can zoom out a bit. Take a breath, and we can say, not me, not mine, not I. And it still means you feel what's happening. 
It just means we're not wrapped around it so solidly. Because the less clinging, the less selfing. So off the cushion, this idea of, of um, not personal, not permanent, and not perfect has been really helpful to me in just kind of day-to-day life. Like it's really kept me from going into some deep sinkholes with people that, that bring up murderous thoughts. They don't last long. They're impermanent, I know. But what I find myself doing when I really feel like it's just really hard is, um, and sometimes I can't do this, but there are times, and often more times than I realize, where I can back up and I can get myself still enough to be able to see and ask myself some questions like, what's happening Where are you gripped right now? Are you taking this situation personally to be a personal experience instead of a human experience? Have people before you felt this way? This asking that question just opens up a broader field. Where else in the world are people experiencing this? Do you believe that how it is now is how it will always be? Are you distressed because you are insisting that the situation be different and other than it is? What does this distress need from you right now? What can you give this distress, this contraction, this fixation, this upset? What can you give it? And what freedom it has been for me to... um, not be held in the grip of anger or defensiveness and fear and to to have a way to turn inward, to kind of care for myself in those moments of real tight fixation. It's kind of like uh, this, this shift from being on red alert all the time and ready for war. So... To develop a relationship with the knowing mind is really um, um, our pure state, our natural state, our pure state of mind, is to ask the question, what's being known? To open the awareness to seeing the play of the nature of mind being not personal, not permanent, not perfect. So maybe this is enough for now. Let's just sit for a few minutes together.
It is the very mind that leads the mind astray. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.